acknowledging that we're all doing this together and we're building on each other's strengths. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali. And you're listening to Peds Admit. This week on Adult Admit, we are sitting down with Dr. Haura Alawati. She is a PGY2 internal medicine resident at Mass General Hospital. And Alice, what are we going to be talking about today? Yes, today we are going to be talking about hepatology in general with an extensive discussion about cirrhosis. So I feel like this is something we just do not see that often. And it's one of the bread and butter topics of internal medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be hard pressed to, I can't think of the last time I saw a patient in liver failure, maybe once in residency. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we think this is going to be a super high yield episode. We can't wait for you guys to take a listen. Without further ado, here's Haura. Haura, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about where you're from, all that? Oh, sure. So I grew up in Muscat, Oman, and did high school there, then went to medical school in Cornell in Qatar. It was sort of a six-year program, so I didn't really do a bachelor's degree, and then moved here for residency, essentially. (laughs) Awesome. Wow. Oh, interesting. And as a disclaimer, I have to say that I work at MGH, but my views and everything I say here is not a reflection of them or does not reflect their opinions. Okay. Well, that's very fair. We are excited to talk about sort of just adult hepatology basics with you today. Let's start with LFTs. When you see a new bump in the LFTs, what are the first thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, so I've actually recently, um, from a bunch of attendings, heard of a frame shift of moving from using the word LFTs per se to liver chemistry tests. Interesting. People being a little bit more pedantic about what actually reflects liver function. Mm-hmm. But mainly we're talking about AST, ALT, ALKFOS, Billy's. But the main things that reflect actual liver function, be things like INR and albumin, things that reflect synthetic function. In terms of the first thing that comes into my head is from a triage perspective, how bad is it? Mm -hmm. Is it acute liver injury or is it acute liver failure? And liver failure has a more precise definition, which is a change in LFTs that's new in someone who doesn't have prior liver disease over the past 26 weeks, Mm -hmm. along with encephalopathy and an elevated INR of more than 1.5. And the reason that really just matters because it matters in terms of triage because someone with acute liver failure can decompensate a lot more quickly. And so you might want to think about retriaging them to the ICU as opposed to someone with just acute liver injury. Oh, so you make that distinction to sort of determine who you're really worried about. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. And your big kind of differentiating factor, one thing is the INR, of course, but then also the encephalopathy portion of it, that that's not, you would not expect to see that in acute liver injury. Not necessarily. Yes. Okay. Okay. And how do we define cirrhosis? 
So technically, this is a pathologic diagnosis. So you technically need tissue to formally call something cirrhosis, but it's often not everybody who's diagnosed with cirrhosis needs a biopsy. And we often diagnose it clinically based on suggestive signs of imaging when the CT or the ultrasound suggests some findings of fibrosis or cirrhosis based on exam if they have stigmata of portal hypertension, ascites, or hyperestrogenemia, like gynecomastia, or the spider angiomas. And then, as we kind of talked about, some of the lab abnormalities, particularly the synthetic function ones. So say you have a patient who has elevated liver chemistry tests, as you mentioned. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What is your diagnostic framework and approach to these patients? So something that goes in the back of my mind is first, what's elevated and is this really a liver problem? So out of all of the tests that we mentioned, AST is probably the least specific one. Mm -hmm. So if you see that elevated in isolation, that could suggest hemolysis, it could suggest muscle injury. So in the hospital, that's one of the things that I first take note of. Mm-hmm. And then for a change that occurs on admission, I have sort of a different framework of thinking mm-hmm. versus someone who's been admitted for a while and has a bump of LFTs in the hospital. And the main difference is we often start people in the hospital on new medications, typically antibiotics. So the number one, two, and three thing I think about is medication. So I go to their MAR and see what they've gotten and kind of go to livertox.com and see what it does or just run it with the pharmacist and make sure Mm -hmm. that. And sometimes even if we aren't sure and there's a bunch of medication, just doing a trial, stopping one and and seeing what happens. So that's sort of the first base. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing that I would do is sort of characterize the liver abnormality into patterns, primarily hepatocellular versus cholestatic pattern. And some people also differentiate it into infiltrative pattern as well. But hepatocellular and cholestatic are the main big ones. Mm -hmm. And they essentially just help your differential a little bit. One way to easy way to think about it is to use an R ratio. Mm -hmm. And that is a ratio that essentially is the change in ALT over the change in ALK-FOS. And there's like an MD calc for it. So um, don't have to plug in uh, all those numbers by hand. And essentially, if there's like a really large change in ALT that's out of proportion to the change in ALK-FOS, that suggests a hepatocellular pattern. And so your ratio being more than five suggests that. And if there's a change in ALK-FOS that's higher than the change in ALT, the ratio will be really small. So the cutoff is less than two to suggest a cholestatic pattern. And you can, a lot of the times we do get mixed patterns. So you get that number between two and five. Um, and so that's sort of the the starting point that kind of leads you down different branch points. Gotcha. Okay. So to summarize, that was, first of all, that was excellent. Um, to summarize, we're using, we're, our main differentiating factor here is hepatocellular versus cholestatic at plus minus the infiltrative pattern we are using or something that can be of use to us is the R ratio 
which is um Oh, it's the it's your the change in ALT over the change in the ALKFOS. And the thing that we we think about, but I don't think I've ever actually calculated the R ratio is the ALT is way up. We know that the liver is primarily affected. Or yeah. this, there's a huge bump in the ALKFOS. The ALT is a little bit elevated. We think it's probably something else going on. Um, but you okay. you can be more quantitative about that by going to MD calc and calculating your R ratio. Exactly. That's exactly that's spot on. And we also, and that's sort of like one piece of data, but taking into clinical context, like if they have right upper quadrant pain or if they're conjugated, bilies are up, that also mm-hmm. suggests like a cholestatic pattern. But that's sort of one concrete way than saying, oh, that looks a little bit higher to me than usual. Right. Okay. So, so what if the I'm wondering if your thought process changes if the AST and ALT are in, you know, they're they're in the hundreds, they're 70s and 90s versus they are both in the thousands. Are there things that move up on your differential or do you have a framework for thinking about that specific situation? Yeah, definitely. I think LFTs in the thousands are particularly striking and there's a limited amount of things that cause that. There are four things that I tend to think about up front. Mm-hmm. One is medications. So someone coming in de novo with these, like Tylenol, acetaminophen toxicity would be a big one, but thinking about other meds as well. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing would be shock liver. Mm-hmm. So a grand majority of our ICU patients will tend to have LFTs in the thousands from septic shock. And then the third would be an acute stone, so acute Mm -hmm. biliary pathology. And then the last big one would be viral hepatitis. So that's when someone's being newly admitted typically, but we tend to check them even if someone has been in the hospital for a while and has that sudden rise. Gotcha. And then before we move on from a new bump in the liver chemistries to just cirrhosis pathophysiology, I would love to hear, Do you is there a classic medication where you've got an inpatient, their LFTs are, have gone up a little bit on their labs and you're like, oh, this patient is on X. Is there a classic offender here for you? Typically antibiotics. Mm-hmm. We tend to see that a lot, um, cephalosporins or beta-lactams in general, mm-hmm. um, but these are the more common ones that I've seen in the hospital, for sure. Gotcha. Okay. And then let's move on to cirrhosis. Now, we almost never see true cirrhosis physiology in our kids. Is this, when you get sort of a new patient in the ED, are you ever surprised by this diagnosis or is this something that the patient usually has well-documented in their chart and they've interacted with the healthcare system many times, things like that? It's usually pretty well known. There are a few instances where we have had people that are newly diagnosed, but usually not. Usually people come in with a diagnosis and are getting admitted for a decompensation or a complication of that diagnosis. Gotcha. Um, If you don't have a clear etiology, what are some helpful labs to send in those cases? The first thing that we do is really ask about habits and alcohol because that is one of the major culprits, but that also is a diagnosis of exclusion in some Mm -hmm. ways. So definitely hepatitis serologies are the big ones. You know, what's interesting is I feel like in pediatrics, I've actually sent ceruloplasm and alpha and antitrypsin more than I have, more than we necessarily yeah. think primarily about hepatitis, even though we send those two when we have kids coming in like undifferentiated liver failure. But I think we think more about the the obscure, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, fair. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess alcoholic. 
<laughs> liver disease is not a thing really in children, right? So yeah. that, that big one gets taken off yeah, the you list. Need more time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so now if you've got a patient in the ED, sort of general medicine floors, you're prepping their admission and you know they have cirrhosis. Are there things you're looking specifically for in their chart sort of as you do that initial chart review? Yeah, I typically think about uh, what's their baseline substrate in order to be more cognizant of how they're or if they're decompensating right now or if they're coming in for something else. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the diagnosis, how plugged in they are in terms of having a hepatologist and then getting to know their baseline. So this may be a good time to introduce the vibes mnemonic that we use a lot here um, at MGH. And this is kind of just a framework that we use to approach cirrhosis in general, just because there are so many organ systems involved and a lot of potential complications to make sure that we're not missing anything. Mm -hmm. So VIBES is V for volume and Mm -hmm. including hepatorenal syndrome in that bucket. And then Mm -hmm. I for infection, particularly SBP, and then B for bleed, particularly variceal bleeding, and then E for encephalopathy, and then S for screening and transplant workup, or surgery, as people would call it. And so I kind of take that mnemonic and as a checklist in my head and look into three things. What is their baseline with regard to each of these components? Number two is there a decompensation in these components right now? And then third, how am I going to manage each of these components? And so I frame my chart review history and exam based on these three components. So taking volume, for example, as a first, Mm -hmm. looking and asking the patient what their dry weight is as a baseline, for example, Mm -hmm. what they take for diuretics at home. Do they get regularly scheduled LVPs typically? So that's their baseline. And then asking them about how they feel now. Do they think that their legs are more swollen? Do I see that their abdomen is more distended with evidence of ascites? And then in the chart, looking at their weight and also their creatinine to see if they've decompensated from a hepatorenal perspective. Mm-hmm. And then management um, based on the situation, typically diuretics. Gotcha. And do you do, are there specific physical exam maneuvers you do to assess volume status? Um, nothing particularly special, I think, in cirrhotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the volume exam is probably the greatest challenges of internal medicine, but um, yes. in cirrhotics, it's thankfully a little bit more obvious. So mainly the ones that are specific to cirrhosis may probably be ascites. To be mm-hmm. quite honest with you, if it's swollen from their baseline, the patients typically know. And then looking at their lower extremities, Mm-hmm. And the jugular vein as well. Gotcha. So you don't you don't force your patients to do the full uh, fluid wave, but you can get a good assessment of their volume status from your chart review and from your your HMP the remainder of your exam. Yeah, exactly. Okay. In terms of management from a volume perspective, I'm wondering if there's a situation when you would bolus, and I'm wondering if there's a situation where you would put them on IV fluids and sort of what your go to would be in those situations. We don't typically like to give people with cirrhotics a lot of volume, but mm-hmm. they can definitely get septic and can get volume deplete, even if they yeah. appear to be 
volume overloaded, they could be intravascularly depleted, but be right. third spacing. Mm-hmm. So I would typically do the same things as I would do with another patient, just be more cautious and be more ginger about giving fluid. So give gentle boluses of maybe 500 cc's at a time and seeing if that makes a difference or not. Mm-hmm. But just be very careful and make sure that you have a backup plan on how to get the volume out yes. if, if your initial theory was wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. So that kind of brings us to our next question. As you start to think about diuresing these patients, you are, I'm sure, also worried about making sure their electrolytes stay stable. How, how often are you monitoring their labs? Typically daily. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are you trending just like a BMP and MAG or are you adding your albumin, your INR, your platelets, things like that? We, I think we're a little bit less discriminatory with labs than in medicine in general with Pete. So mm-hmm. most of our patients in general get a daily CBC and a BMP. Wow. But in terms of actually needing them, probably not unless there's a clinical change. Right. If you're diuresing patients, I think a daily BMP to look at the creatinine as well as the magnesium and the potassium are the big things that I would monitor. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So let's move on from the V in your Vibes pneumonic volume to the I in your Vibes pneumonic infection. You mentioned wanting to know their baseline status, wanting to know if there was an acute change, and then sort of tailoring your management based on that. Yeah. And so with infection, the main one is SBP. And so the baseline would sort of be, do they have a history of that? And are they on prophylaxis for it? Mm. So typically, if they are taking prophylaxis, they would be taking ciprofloxacin. And that mainly is helpful in terms of your risk assessment and probability of them having a recurrent SBP right now. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of current admission, because SBP has a high mortality and can be completely asymptomatic, we tend to screen everybody with cirrhosis for SBP when they come in. Oh, okay. So almost everybody with cirrhosis who walks into the hospital will get at least a diagnostic tap. Just to make sure, regardless of whether they have fever, abdominal pain, or any of the classic peritonitis signs. In the paracentesis, if you see over 250 PMNs in the fluid, you'll you'll end up diagnosing them with SBP. And do you also mm-hmm. send it for a culture? And is there a classic organism? Yeah, we the typical diagnosis of SVP is made by the PMN, so more than 250 PMNs mm-hmm. okay. is a diagnosis. You don't need an organism, and I don't think I've ever seen something grow. We always send it for cultures, oh, but we hardly ever see anything grow from that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. yeah. So it's not like a UTI where you you could you could just ask what organism there is in the culture. It's it's more of a cytology diagnosis. Yeah, essentially, just because of the yield from the peritoneum is very low. Mm-hmm. It can also be helpful sometimes to stratify if someone needs primary SBP prophylaxis. Okay, and then what is treatment? Typically, ceftriaxone is mm-hmm. what we use. So two grams daily for about five days. And do you give albumin in any situations? 
Um, we do for the, thank you for bringing the, that up. That's a key component of treatment of SVP. I mentioned uh, ceftriaxone, but albumin, um, which we give on day one and day three, is also really important because, and the main reason we give that is because of the risk of going into HRS when you develop SVP. And so uh, we do typically give albumin on day one and day three. Oh, so SVP, new SVP puts you at significant risk for hepatorenal syndrome. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do, you have a, do you have a pathophysiology in your mind of why that is? Or is that just a data thing that you prefer not to? Oh, gosh. I, so I think hepatorenal syndrome is one of the things that took me a while to wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have a direct correlate between SVP and hepatorenal syndrome, aside from if you're infected, similar to what would happen with sepsis, uh, where you mm-hmm. have vasodilation and that decrease in renal perfusion triggering the cycle for hepatorenal syndrome, similar to what the splanchnic vasodilation that happens at baseline with cirrhotics that predisposes them for HRS in general. I mm-hmm. think that having that added effect of an infection, particular SVP, exacerbates that. That's how I think about it. Uh, I think there's no. probably more data and more evidence-based <laughs> things to prove the connection. No, but that makes sense, even just a little bit of a, a memory link there. Yeah. Just a reminder that even though a bump in creatinine in someone with cirrhosis can definitely be HRS and that's something that you're worried about. Mm-hmm. You have to really make, they're prone to getting everything else too. So making sure that it's not pre-renal because you over them or mm-hmm. gave them a ton of lactulose and they're having massive diarrhea now or septic, yeah. making sure that it's not intrarenal. So checking a urine sediment. Mm-hmm. And to differentiate between um, HRS and pre-renal, we also often give an albumin challenge, a fluid challenge, and see if that uh, makes it better. Mm. And because of the increase in third spacing and ascites, some of the times they can also get post-renal as well. So before jumping to all the specific treatments for HRS, making sure that you kind of exonerated all the other causes and then getting into the weeds of HRS treatment. It's a great way to put it. <laughs> so not forgetting to do a thorough or thoroughly work through your differential for other causes. That's yes. important. The full pre-renal, infrarenal, and post-renal yeah. AKI workup, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Well, thank you so much. This was an awesome kind of summary and establish a great framework for us as we start to see some of these patients. Awesome. Before you go. Yeah. um, Should we move on to the B in the vibes mnemonic? B bleeding. Sure. So that is, that is one of the things that scares me a lot in the hospital Mm -hmm. because they, they can decompensate really quickly. And so one of the things that I do for baseline is see if they've ever had an endoscopy before and if they've gotten banded or if they're taking something like propranolol as prophylaxis for bleeding. Mm-hmm. And then asking if they've ever had that before in general, even if they didn't get endoscopy. And then in the setting of an acute GI bleed, which is what I was alluding to earlier, mm-hmm. I think the number one, two, and three things are making sure that you have adequate resuscitation. So having large bore IVs, two preferentially, and then 
making sure that you have an active type and screen at hand and preparing a bunch of units is mm -hmm. one of the big things as well as calling GI because these people need to be inter intervene upon on the sooner side. Mm -hmm. Other things that we do for them, we do give them SBP prophylaxis. So we start them on ceftriaxone because of the higher rate of bacterial translocation in the setting mm -hmm. of a bleed. We start them on an IV PPI and octreotide as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, and then don't forget your ABCs because... A lot of the times if someone is having active hematemesis, sometimes they can't protect their airway. So yeah. making sure that before any and all of that, making sure that they can protect their airway, of course. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've kind of described the worst case scenario. They're typically not as dramatic when they're up on the floor. <laughs> uh -huh. Is octreotide something, I'm sort of wondering how casually you use it. Is this something that up, they have cirrhosis, they have a bleed they are now on octreotide every time? Or is this something they have cirrhosis, they have a bleed, and now I'm starting to get worried or they meet X criteria and so I've started octreotide? We're typically not very discriminatory about its use in someone with cirrhosis and a GI bleed. Mm -hmm. We typically start the triaxone, PPI, and octreotide. So all three things. So we've talked about V volume. We've talked about I infection, B bleeding. Let's move on to E encephalopathy. What what are you thinking about when you think about encephalopathy from a baseline perspective, an acute change perspective, and a treatment perspective? Yes, from a baseline perspective, the best information you might get is actually from a patient's family member about what mm. they're like because they don't really remember how much they were confused necessarily. One of the early signs is sleep-wake cycle disturbances. So one thing you could ask the patient is if they are pacing a lot at night and are awake at night, um, but sleep a lot in the morning. But generally asking their family members what they're typically like at baseline and then asking about what they take. So are they on lactulose? Are they compliant with it? Do they also take rifaximin? What's been a lot of these patients get admitted frequently for encephalopathy. So thinking about what was a trigger in the past, are they very likely to miss their lactulose or mm -hmm. were they recently put on a higher dose of diuretics and have electrolyte abnormalities? So encephalopathy is kind of a sign you really have to dig about what led to the decompensation right now. And that sort of is the cornerstone of the management in addition to making them poop. Yes. Are there specific physical exam maneuvers you do to tailor besides just your good history from the family? So some helpful things to do to kind of assess hepatic encephalopathy would be assessing their attention. So a lot of the times people would default to just asking A&O questions like, mm -hmm. can you tell me your name, where you are? But most of these patients, even if they're really encephalopathic can answer these pretty okay, especially if they're asked yeah. that repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, but asking them to do something like the days of the week forwards and backwards can reveal more subtle encephalopathy that these initial ANO questions can miss. And then um, one way you could also assess on a day-to-day -day basis their degree of encephalopathy is asterixis. Um and so there are different ways to elicit that. But one of the classic ways is kind of put your hands out like you're stopping traffic and keep them there. And you can ask them to close their, their eyes too. And then seeing if they have that classic flapping tremor and to what degree. Gotcha. And then how do you treat these patients? The key thing is, well, 
to go back to the bleeding thing, first make sure that they can protect their airways because encephalopathy can sometimes get really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that is making sure that you find a precipitant. So that could be something like medication non-compliance, electrolyte abnormality, any infection anywhere else. So your initial diagnostic paracentesis is also part of your encephalopathy workup in some ways. And then medication changes to things that would cause altered mental status in any other elderly patients if they've been recently started on Ambien or benzos or anything like that. So taking a general good altered mental status history and, and physical to make sure that you address the precipitant. But beyond that, generally lactulose is the cornerstone. And so giving them like 30 mils every couple of hours until they have like about three or four bowel movements a day or until their mental status improves. And uh, we also add rifaximin if lactulose alone is not helping. What role does rifaximin play here? Why is it useful? So the pathophysiology of hepatic encephalopathy is the accumulation of ammonia that the liver um, used to be able to process. And the ammonia is primarily as a result of gut bacteria metabolism. And so rifaximin being a local or topical rather antibacterial that doesn't get into the systemic circulation helps Mm. eliminate or decrease the burden of the bacteria in the gut and hopefully decrease the amount of ammonia that gets released. Gotcha. That makes sense. And then, so we've talked about all of the vibes mnemonic except for the S. So we've talked about volume, infection, bleeds, encephalopathy. Let's move on to screening and surgery. How often do you find yourself acutely getting patients ready for a liver transplant? Is this a, is this a, something you address often? Uh, not something that's very acute. I think the, the biggest thing is to make sure that um, you address all the other first things to make sure that you address their acute decompensations that could be really life-threatening. But you also, um, the S is sort of an opportunity to make sure that you take a step back and look at the big picture about Mm -hmm. all of these measures in some ways are temporizing. And if they can get a liver transplant, then that's their biggest way out. So uh, making sure that when you discharge them, they're plugged in with a hepatologist that you gave them their vaccines, so their Hep A, Hep B vaccines, and the usual flu and um, pneumovax stuff, mm-hmm. and that they're getting um, HCC screening on a regular basis. So these things are not necessarily things that you have to do as an inpatient, but a lot of these folks are come from marginalized societies and get lost to follow up in the outpatient setting. So Mm -hmm. trying to optimize things and making sure that they're plugged in and connected and giving them an opportunity for the best life possible. Absolutely. And then one follow-up question to that, what goes into HCC screening? Typically, some form of imaging, either the most common one that we do is the right upper quadrant ultrasound. Or you could also do an MRI every six months with an AFP as well, lab test. Mm -hmm. So now we've kind of worked our way through the mnemonic. That was super helpful mnemonic, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) When do we, at what point do we say, okay, we can't really manage this patient on the floor anymore and escalate them to the ICU? You did kind of allude to this earlier in the episode, but just to kind of recap. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's super important. I think if they can't protect their airway and making sure that you consciously think about that, mm-hmm. and that's in scenarios of a bleed um, or encephalopathy, most typically. And so making sure that you're um, keeping an eye on their mental status is important. And then sometimes hepatorenal syndrome mm-hmm. can be a reason to move someone to the ICU. If you've tried to manage their HRS on the floor, but they're now needing like a presser mm-hmm. to help increase their MAP to manage their HRS, that could be another reason that they go into the ICU. And then the third reason is the severity of their bleed. Sometimes even if they're not at the stage where they can't protect their airway, but if you're worried about them decompensating, they have really bad coagulopathy, and you're stuck in terms of being able to resuscitate them because of their kidneys, then moving them to the ICU on the sooner side might be something you could think about. Mm-hmm. Any, I don't know, anything else, any other closing thoughts you'd like to share with us? Yeah, just because you've been one of the providers working specifically in the ICU during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of the times I've only been on the ICU for a short amount of times and a lot of these people get worse and are in there for a while before they get better. Mm -hmm. But there's been so much positivity in general and collegiality amongst us. So I've been loving all the collaborative efforts between residents, attendings, who I've heard like from the grayest attending to like interns and nurses everybody in between say they feel like they're starting their training all over again and everybody is kind of pushed out of their comfort zones Mm and in different ways but acknowledging that we're all doing this together and we're building on each other's strengths and so something like the podcast that you're doing is hopefully one of the efforts into the positivity (laughs) oh that was wonderful and that's so true I feel like it's like a a huge adversity that we're facing and it's new for everybody. And so, yeah, it's really a sense of community. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. 